Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Awesome. It's so great to see you all. Man, it's so good to be back. I know that being back from the park is bittersweet. Uh, how many of you love going to the park? How many of you love going to the dock? We can, we can clap. That's okay. <laughs> I always love when like one person's like, is anybody, anybody going to do that? No? Um, here's the thing. There's a, I have a bittersweet relationship. I love the park because we get so many people who are visiting from out of town, from other churches, and it's a great time to come together. But there's one downside for me, and this is why I actually love the dock, is that the dock is our opportunity to be community. There's a deeper sense of connection. Would you agree with that? I mean, that is the, don't get me wrong. One of the things, and this is a major celebration point, this summer, from June to July, we averaged almost 900 every Sunday at the park, which is incredible. And then, yeah, that's a, that's, God's doing some great things there. And here was, the, here was the cool part. As I was having conversations, I talked to more and more people who were like, yeah, I was listening to the message or I heard worship. And I, they didn't, a lot of non-Christians who were kind of checking it out. And oh, kind of a theme that I heard over and over again was people who were coming and just kind of listening and going, you know, I was really connecting with what was being done here. And we had several people that started coming every week. Uh, that was wonderful, and hopefully they've joined us here on Sunday morning. If they have, if you have, please come and talk to me. Um, but it's great to be back, and I'm so excited. If you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, we are starting a new series. And as we're doing this, we're coming into a couple big things, and I, I want us to be aware as a community. Next year is Zion's 150th year of ministry in Clear Lake. That's incredible. That's another clap. That's, that's Jesus doing faithfulness, right? And here's the thing for me is that I'm praying that Zion gets another 150 years. I won't be here to see them all. But <laughs> that's my prayer is that we continue to be a Jesus-loving, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-led church that continues to impact our community. Um, one of the things that we're doing to kind of launch this in the past, every day, this Sunday would typically be called Rally Day. How many of you guys remember Rally Day? Here's the thing. We do all these things, rally day, rally day. No one rallied. So we, we, no one rallied. It wasn't a thing. So what we did, we decided instead we were going to hold a party. Now, any of you Enneagram people out here, I'm an Enneagram 7. I love parties. So we're doing a launch party this year. And uh, if you didn't find out or if you have, how many of you heard about launch party? Some of you? Awesome. Well, if you haven't, let me tell you about it. After this service, we're going over into the parking lot at the traditional building. And we've got free food. We've got music. Uh, we've got uh, laser tag for the kids and some of you older people who like to play. I, I want to see our, our council get together and play some laser tag. That'd be amazing. Beth Ann with a shooter would be awesome. We've uh, <laughs> been laser tag, bounce house, and then we're giving away a Green Mountain Grill. And this thing is a beast. It's awesome. And here's the thing. If you invite somebody to come and they don't go to Zion, you get an extra name in the hat for every person you bring. But really, this is why we did it. It's not just for us to gather. We want to love our city. And so we've been talking to the fire department and to the businesses around the area, and we've been inviting people. We want to love our city well. And so you don't have to go to Zion to belong, to be a part of what Zion's doing. And you, even if they're coming to the part or to the, to the launch party, that's awesome. Because it's our way of showing it's us as a community and us coming together. And God is doing some wonderful things there. Now, another thing that God is doing, which I'm really excited about, we are going to be partnering with River City Church in Mason City. It's a new church, started about a year ago. Brian Resvedez, did I say his name? I think I said his last name right. Pastor there, um, great ministry. God's doing some awesome things there for three nights of revival starting this week. And how many of you know Joe Bieber? Yeah. I'm going to invite Joe up. Joe is here. Oh, you want to grab the microphone, brother? Uh, Joe is coming with his new ministry called Proclaim Jesus, uh, where he's going to be leading us three nights in revival. We have two nights over at River City, and then Friday night is going to be here, and it's an opportunity to have an encounter with the Lord. And so we want to invite everybody. Joe, why don't you share a little bit about what's going to be going on, and, and then we're going to pray for Joe, because God's doing some pretty incredible things through this dude's life. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Hi, guys. For those who don't know me, my name's Joe Bieber. Yeah. I'm, I'm super happy to be here, guys. I've... I have never felt the grace of God, the call of God to minister in Clear Lake before. I, I grew up in this town. I was completely lost, broken. I went to church, did drugs, drank, partied, and then I met him. 
I met Jesus, and I hit my knees. I said, God, if you're real, I'll give you everything. I'll give you my whole life. I crashed. I was drunk driving, crashed my truck into a tree, and I met Jesus. I gave my life. I said, I'll do anything for you, God. And God can do a lot more with your yes than what you know or your physical ability or natural ability. And, and I just gave him my yes, and God sent me all different countries all across this country preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing so many people saved. I started a ministry, like Jason said, it's called Proclaim Jesus, and, and we do evangelism. I'm after the lost, I'm after the hurting, I'm after the broken. And uh, we do stuff like I started a, a church that grew to over 200 people in a homeless camp with a bunch of people addicted to heroin and meth and California's crazy. It's a lot crazier than here. <laughs> it's where I'm from, so, you know, it's all good. <laughs> and, uh, Explains but, a lot. But God has sent me around the country since January preaching a message to awaken hearts, and I believe that we're on the verge of a third grade awakening. If you watch the news, you don't see stuff like that. But I promise you, God is doing something so special in our country, and I just wanted to bring it to my hometown and bring it to you guys. And... Uh, we're doing three nights, like Jason said. I'll put some flyers out there. I'm bringing two speakers in. One's, one's from California. His name's Chris Kildosher, an amazing evangelist. And my other friend, Charlie Elliott, he's been a missionary in Mexico and Colombia and all over the world. He was a lawyer, got hit by the power of God, and he's preaching the gospel all over the place. So come on out. Bring your friends and family. Who has friends and family here who don't know Jesus? Everybody knows Christians. That's great. Yeah. We should probably get to know some non-Christians people. <laughs> <laughs> but br bring them out. Bring them out. We're not intimidated. We, we want to we wanna show people that Jesus Christ is alive and Amen. he's real. So come on out. I got to run to another service. I'm going to set some flyers out there on a the table. Grab as many as you want. I love you guys. I hope to see you this week. We're going to pray real quick. He's heading over to River City to share there as well. Father, we thank you for the work that you know. Oh, if you want to extend a hand, anybody want to extend a hand out with me, that'd be great. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing through Joe. Holy Spirit, as he continues to just be faithful to the things that you've called him, Lord, we thank you that you rescued this prodigal son, that, that you brought him back into your loving arms, and that, Jesus, you have ignited something in him. And as he's now felt a calling back to come to North Iowa, uh, Lord, we're excited to see what you're going to do. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, you are awakening things at Zion, but not just at Zion and other churches throughout our area. And so, Lord, now we pray for revival and renewal in this community, that we would see lives change, hearts on fire, and above all else, a community impacted by the gospel. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we thank you for a brother. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thanks, brother. Love you, man. Um, so one of the things that we're, we're going into this new season where we're going to be talking the next four weeks, kind of a, a new vision, a new direction, and really it should be an old vision and an old direction. And, and I want to share a little bit of kind of this refocus that we've been doing. And as we're coming to the dock and we're launching into a new ministry year, today we're kind of kicking off this series. What does it look like to be the church that God has called us to be? And it really is kind of a refocusing. Now, for the last six months, we've kind of we, we've put together a focus that, quite frankly, is a biblical focus. It's not unique, should not be unique to us. And it's two things, community and mission. And, and here's the thing. What, what does it mean to be community? Now, uh, I didn't grow up in Clear Lake, Iowa. I grew up in San Diego. And really, the only family I ever had was my mom and I. That was really about it. And when I became a Christian, the church became my family. Now, one of the things that I know sometimes is difficult, I was talking with our staff, and like, I, I swear to you, like the Watsons, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Watson or a Crawford. They're everywhere. It's like they've taken over. The, like Derek, I kid you not, if Pastor Derek, if he invited his entire family, this, this place, this whole section would just be Crawfords. That's why we let him preach, really, is we let him preach because it just boosts attendance. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we had like 1,000, 400 were Derek's family. And, and here's the thing, when we talk about community as a church, it's, it's tough because if you've grown up with a family, you may not think of the church as your family. But the language that Scripture uses is that we are a community and we're called to be a family together. And in that, um, what that really means is particularly for people like me, when I became a Christian, the church became my family. I had spiritual mothers and fathers who raised me. I looked to these godly men in my life who showed me what it meant to be a man because I didn't have a father in my life. 
And I know for many in Clear Lake, some of you like came out of the womb holding hands with your neighbor's kid. I get it. Like you've all known people for years, but we have more people moving who are now transplants. And they're moving here and they don't have family. Or maybe you have family, but maybe you don't like your family. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. Sometimes you may not like your family. But here's the thing. In the church, the church is called to be a community. And so six months ago, we started this focus of how do we become community? How do we become the church that God has called us to be? A family. And then the second was we were a church on a mission. And that mission is not just globally. We're doing amazing things in Peru. I mean, I've been, I've been talking with Pastor Nelton and the things that God is doing there. Like, I think there's over a thousand young people coming to this church in Peru that we're partnering with with Genesis. It's amazing. But here's the thing. We have a mission right here in Clear Lake. Amen? Now, if you're new with us, I like amens, right? We, we can get all gospel up and, and charismatic up in here. So if anybody agrees, you can go, amen, preach it, brother. It's all good. But here's the thing. We have a community that we're called to minister to. Our mission field is here. And one of the reasons why we're doing this launch party is not just for Zion. It's to love our city. It's to love the people in our community better. Because what if maybe God put us here for a reason? Maybe there's a strategic purpose that Zion exists. It's not just so you can go to church, but that we can be a part of what God is doing in His church. See, this is the, this is the part. See, when we think about the church, the, the, everything I just shared, this community and mission, this should be the heartbeat of every church. This isn't unique to Zion. Every church should care about those two things because they're incredibly biblical. But... We also have a, a different way of looking at church. Now, sometimes we think of this word kingdom of God, and we think that the church is the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. We are rather an outpost for the kingdom. And if you think, if you don't know much about outposts, think of kind of like an embassy or back in the, the, the Wild West in the ancient times, an outplay, outpost was not the kingdom. It represented the kingdom, and it, it served a purpose. And that's what the church is. It's easy to confuse and think that the church is the goal. No, this is not the goal. This is everything that we do here. This hour that we meet a week is not the goal of Christianity. It's all the other hours outside of here is the goal. Does that make sense? Here we come together for a purpose, and here's kind of why the church exists. Check this out. So we live in enemy territory. All of you know people who aren't Christians. You work with people who aren't Christians. Now, that doesn't mean they hate God or that they hate the church, but they're not in relationship with God, or some really don't like God at all. And as we look, even in Clear Lake, Iowa, as beautiful and as wonderful as the city is, and there are so many godly people in leadership. I mean, I think about Nelson Crabb, our mayor, loves Jesus. How cool is that, that the, the mayor of our, of our town goes to our church and loves Jesus? That's wonderful. But there are so many people who don't. We have a purpose here. And when we gather, here's kind of the purpose for why it is. Okay, now again, these are all biblical. These are not things unique to Zion, but sometimes we forget them. First, we are a gathering place to worship our King, who is Jesus. When we come and sing, we're not just singing songs to fill time or to rally the troops or so that people can be entertained. Not saying that entertainment doesn't happen, not saying it doesn't rally, but that's not the purpose. The primary reason why we sing songs is to worship our King. It's to worship Jesus, to give Him, to minister to His heart. And in the process, He ministers to us. But worship is not just about music. It's everything that takes place from the message to the offering to communion to talking and high-fiving or saying hello or saying you know, how you felt after the game yesterday. That, that can all be worship if it's brought in community. But then that leads to the second part, and that is the church is called to be a safe space for God's people to connect. That's what an outpost was. I want you to picture for a moment if we were in, in the 1800s and you were wandering through the frontier through enemy territory, and when you saw that outpost, you knew it was a safe place to respite, a safe place to rest. Part of the reason why we gather is to uh, have a safe place where we can say hello and greet and encourage one another and give hugs and be the church for one another. But it's not just about having a safe place. It's also a healing place. Some of you are coming here this morning wounded from the week. 
Maybe you had a fight with your spouse or lost a job or you got bad news about a health issue or maybe a family member is sick or dying and you're coming hurt. Sometimes the purpose of the church is to be a healing place and that's one of our desires for Zion is that some of you are coming wounded, wounded in life, wounded even from church. And we want Zion to be a safe place for you, but a healing place. It's also a training place, a place where we can teach you how to be a Christian, not just in church. It's easy to follow Jesus here, isn't it? I mean, right here in this place, it's easy to to sing a song and listen to a message and go, all right, I did my Christian thing. But we want to help you to be a Christian all the other hours of the week. We want to train you how to love Jesus in your everyday life. And then if not just a training place, we're a sending place, realizing that God has called every single one of you, not just me, not just the paid professionals. God has called every single person who loves Jesus to be a minister of his gospel, regardless of where you are. Whether it's at a car dealership, or whether it's at a school, or the hospital, God is preparing you to do work there on behalf of him. And when you come here, you're not only getting training, but you're getting safety, you're getting rest. But then here's the last one, and I'm sure there are probably other ones, but here's the one that often we forget. We're also an embassy. The church represents a place of reconciliation and hope that when someone who doesn't know Jesus or who is hurt in the world can come here and hear the good news about Jesus. That's that's what the church should be. Now, here's the thing. As I look at the world, this this is not a unique thing to Zion. All Jesus-loving, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-led churches should desire to be this type of church community. Not every church does, but every church should desire to be those things. We're not unique in this. But there is one thing that I see unique in our world right now. And as I talk to people, whether inside the church or outside the church, there's one word that seems to be creeping into lots of conversation. Discouragement. I'm talking to people, Christian and non, who seem to be discouraged whether it be from the political landscape of our country. I want you to think about this. Yesterday, we, we had the memorial for 9-11. It's been 20 years since 9-11. How many of you guys remember what the atmosphere around our country was on the day after 9-11? Remember seeing enemies coming together, people who didn't talk? It seemed like we were united as a country. Would you agree with that? We were united. Do you feel like we're united now? 20 years after 9-11, this horrible, horrific disaster done by evil people Our country rallied together. Here we are 20 years later, and I feel more disjointed than ever before in my lifetime. Whether it's because of the president you like or don't like, whether it's the pandemic, it just feels like discouragement is running through the veins of the world. Others, you're discouraged because your marriage is struggling, or maybe you're discouraged because you're not married yet. Some of you are discouraged because your, your work is going bad or your business is struggling. Other people are discouraged because of issues with their children or maybe because they can't have children. Some of you are discouraged simply because it's hard to maintain physical, emotional, and spiritual health. About five months ago, I started working out again. And I go to the gym. I usually get there between 5.30 and 6.30 every morning, five days a week. I, I do the whole thing. And, you know, I'm working really hard to get healthy and to lose weight and build muscle and do all the things. And then I get to the office and someone brings donuts. And I'm like, I put in, you know, I just, I just did four miles on the treadmill. Now, before you think I'm a beast, I'm not running four miles, okay? <laughs> These legs are not built for running. They're <laughs> quick bursts of speed. That's about it. And all of a sudden, I see that donut, and that donut is like, Jason. And I'm like, I can resist, and then eventually, maybe I'm having a hard day, and what do I do? I eat that donut, and does that donut make me feel better? Yes, for about five minutes. And then I'm discouraged, and then I go, you know what I need for discouragement? Another donut. And so, <laughs> I, I, you're laughing because you know it's true, don't you? Like, we all know the struggle. It's the, it's the real battle that comes with discouragement. And here's the thing, what we tend to do when we're discouraged is we turn to things that we think are going to offer hope, but don't. We turn to things that we think are going to fix us and only they spin us out more. How many of you have been there? Raise your hand. How many of you? Okay. We've all been there, right? You think you're doing it and all of a sudden you find yourself doing the thing that you think is going to make you feel better and it makes you feel worse. And it seems like that's not just a Christian thing. It seems like everybody's doing that. There's this book by a guy named Ray Johnston. Ray Johnston is the pastor at Bayside Christian Church in Sacramento. 
Uh, his worship leader is a guy named Lincoln Brewster. If you've never heard of him, very well-known worship leader, huge church. He wrote a book called Hope Quotient. And I read this book about a year, year and a half ago, and I want to read to you one of the things he says. A huge life principle I have learned the hard way is that discouragement precedes destruction. I cannot find anything that has been destroyed without discouragement being the underlying cause. Now listen to this next part. No person has ever come to me and said, I am so encouraged by my marriage, I'm going to get a divorce. Or I am so encouraged about my church that I'm attending, I'm leaving it. No one ever does that, right? No one ever says how good something is and then chooses to make a bad decision. But when your marriage is frustrating, when things are not going well and you feel discouraged, sometimes it feels like the only out is to just be done. Or when church isn't going your way, I I hate to tell you guys this, maybe you didn't know this, but the church is filled with imperfect people. Did you know that? There's an old adage that says this, I I was looking for a perfect church, I found one, and then I attended it and ruined it all. See, the thing is, is that we, we get discouraged by church because church isn't filled with perfect people and the world looks at us and goes, oh, those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites because, and I want you to hear this, the reason why a lot of non-Christians think church is filled with hypocrites is because we don't show them an authentic Christianity. We want them to think that we're a bunch of put-together people who have our life figured out when in reality we're all on the same struggle bus. You know what I'm talking about? And in fact, when I meet non-Christians and they get to know me, this sounds really bad, but I love when somebody says to me, you're a pastor? I never would have guessed that. I love that. And I'm like, that's awesome. Why? I'm like, well, you don't act like one. I'm like, what does a pastor act like? Not you. Praise Jesus. Like, that's awesome. I'll take that. Like, I, I, I think I shared this. Like, one of my, a kid I mentored for years, he, he, I wouldn't let him come to my church. I had a rule that if I ever mentored a student, if they didn't go to my church, they weren't allowed to start coming because I wasn't mentoring, discipling kids to grow my youth group. Any kid who asked me, and I still do it. If you ask me to mentor you, I'll pray about it, and I feel like the God says, yes, I'll do it. So he started coming. He said, Jason, I meet my pastor, and I look at my pastor, and I don't think he sins. And I'm like, okay. He's like, look at my youth pastor. He's just the coolest guy. He's got everything together. And he goes, and then I look at you, and I'm like, thank you? But then he said something that it really resonated with me. And he goes, no, 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 that's a good thing because I can be you. You're just a guy who loves Jesus and loves people. People are looking for that hope and encouragement. He then says this, when discouragement is present, storm clouds are on the horizon. Something is going to be attacked, potentially destroyed. Every marriage that has broken up, every person who has given up, every company that has gone belly up, every venture that has failed, every church I have seen decline, every country that has gone downhill, and certainly every suicide ever committed all shared one emotion, discouragement. Discouragement devastates and absolute discouragement devastates absolutely. In the absence of hope, discouragement rules. You won't find a more ruthless, negative, destructive, vicious, and dictator anywhere on the planet. I bet every single person in this room knows what I'm talking about. Every single person in this room knows what discouragement feels like, don't you? And our job is to be a people who point people not to things that they think are going to fill that void of hopelessness or discouragement. See, when you feel discouraged, that's when you turn to food or some of you, you isolate pornography, television, drinking or drugs, unhealthy relationship. You turn to these things hoping that they'll fix the issue and they just lead you deeper and deeper in the hole. But here's the thing, as the church, we know there's something else because in the wise, sage, in the wise words of the sage Bono, we still haven't found what we're looking for. No matter how hard we've tried, We think that we're looking for it, and we know the church, our ultimate hope is not found in those things. Our hope is found in Jesus, not that dude. You can can take that down now. (laughs) So what's this got to do with the church? What's this got to do with us as Zion? See, now this is probably, you've heard this message, this part of it, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. We all know that the church is not a building or an institution. The church is the people. You guys have probably heard this. Here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. See the church. Right? I'm not going to preach that because that's been preached to death. I've said it. I've preached it more times than I can count. We also know that the church has a mission. That our church, every church exists to be salt and light. As part of our Sermon on the Mount series, we tackled this. And we learned that as salt... The church, God's people, are called to preserve what is good, 
to keep away death and decay, to clean out wounds, to be a healing place. We also know that the church, that as Christians, we're supposed to add and bring out flavor in life. And as light, we're called to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light, offering hope, safety, and refuge. See, in the ancient world, they didn't have street lights and lamps and all that stuff. When you were walking through the desert or the wilderness, that's in the middle of the night is when you would be attacked. That's when robbers would come. But as you were walking in the darkness and you see in the distance a light on a hill, what you felt was hope. What you felt was safety. If only I can make it there. Are we a church that when people think about Zion, they go, if only I could get there. If only I could be there. That, that feels like a safe place. See, Zion, God is calling us as a church to something else. Because here's the thing. We are called to be a people who can bring other people to the remedy for discouragement, the ultimate hope, who is Jesus. It's not Zion. We are not the hope of the world. Jesus is. And God is wanting to move in and through this, but how do we do this? What does it look like, feel like? How does the church culture, what kind of culture do we create that looks like this, that when people come, they go, I want to be a part of that. You know how many new faces I've seen this morning? Some of them came from the park. I've talked to people like, yeah, I just started coming a month ago, two months ago. This is awesome. My hope is, is as they look at our culture, they go, wow, I want that. But how do we get there? Now, when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, I, I started growing facial hair. This is going somewhere, I promise. <laughs> started growing facial hair. And I had that little wannabe mustache. You know what I'm talking about that all 16, 15, 16, 17-year-olds had? It was this straggly-looking mustache. It was horrible. But here's the deal. <laughs> That's who I was trying to become. Because in the 80s and 90s, Tom Selleck, and I looked in the mirror, and I knew I didn't have that stash. I knew that was not there. That was not happening for me. But I had hope. I looked, and so check this out. I took a picture of my junior year, and I couldn't find the picture. My mom reminded me she had it, and I wish I had it. Maybe I'll bring it next week. And in it, I'm taking my pose with my mustache, and I'm doing this. <laughs> like, I am so smug and thinking like, yeah, rock it. Here's the thing. My stash looked nothing like Tom Selleck, but I had hope because it's all about perspective. Isn't it? Think about it. When you have the right perspective, even a hopeless situation can feel better. Amen? When you have a different perspective, things cannot, that were discouraging all of a sudden feel they're not as discouraging because you know there's hope. Now, here's part of the problem. When we read our Bible, we often read our Bible with this lens. I need, to use, I need to read the Bible to apply it to my life, right? We've all done that. How do I apply this text to my life? How many of you have ever been reading the Bible and went, I, I don't know what to do with that? You know what I'm talking about? I know I've, I've read it and I'm like, I don't, what am I supposed to do with that there were 540,000 people in the tribe of Issachar? Um, Jesus, Holy Spirit, help. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, there are all, all these things in the Bible that I'm like, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Part of it is, is we've been trained by the church culture in the sermon that the pastor gets up and he breaks down a verse and maybe one or two verses and he gives you life application for it. And now we think the whole book is supposed to be that way. And then when it's not, we feel like there's something wrong with us or the Bible. And maybe the issue is that we haven't necessarily learned the healthiest way to read the Bible. I'm not saying that that's bad because there certainly is life application in Scripture, but there's not always application. What if a better way, a healthier way to read Scripture is that it changes our perspective. Maybe scripture is meant to change our perspective about ourself, about our world, maybe even about God. Now, if I read it and going, okay, what's the perspective shift? Now, I'm not saying that answers everything. It doesn't, but it might answer some things. And what if in our preaching, we began to preach that way? Let me give you an idea from a perspective. This is from Ray Hope's book. He shared this letter a teenage, uh, teenage daughter wrote. Dear mom and dad, I know this is really going to be disappointing to you, but I met a guy. He's about 15 years older than I am. We're in love. We just eloped. I'm two months pregnant. I'm dropping out of school, and I will contact you at some point in the future. I'm really sorry, your daughter. P.S. Just kidding, but I did flunk one class and need $200. Please keep this in perspective. <laughs> It's amazing how all of a sudden you're like, here's $500, like, I don't, an F, what's an F? Like, not, like, 
Perspective can change everything. I wonder, that really landed well. I'm so glad that, that was, I read it and I was like, God, that's funny. Sometimes we need a perspective shift. As we look at the role of the church, I wonder if what we really need in order to become the church that God is calling us to be is not just better sermons or better music, though those are good things. Not just better biblical teaching, though that's a great thing. I, that's what my whole life is built on. I want to teach good scripture. I want to teach faithfully. But what if? I wonder if what we need is a change of perspective. I wonder if what we need is to have the Holy Spirit help us see this incredible gift that God has given you and me, given the world, which is His church, through a different lens. What if we no longer see the church as something that we attend, but something we're a part of? What if we no longer see the church as just something that's an hour of our day, but a community of people who come together to be family, to be community, who are on mission together to love our city, to love one another, to love our world for Jesus? Could that make a difference? Yes. Why are, we doing the, why are we doing the launch party? Are we just doing it to have a fun party? No, we're actually trying to love our city better. And one of the best ways we love our city better is by loving each other better. And so when we invite people to see what's going on, what happens when they walk into a community who they see, what they see is four or 500 people who love each other so well, they go, I want that because I can't find that anywhere else in the world. Our world is looking for hope, and it starts with us having a perspective change. So, how do we do this? Well, I want to teach you a word that we've all heard growing up, and in fact, it's a word that we've, much like the word love, we throw it out there without actually understanding its meaning or how deep it is. We can say we love a candy bar in the same breath that we say I love my wife and I love Jesus. Obviously, they mean different types of love, but the word has become cheapened. Well, this word is equally to that, and it's often used by Christians and non-Christians alike, and the word is good. Four simple letters, good. And this word, for us, we use it all the time and not even realizing it. It's a religious term that carries way more weight, and I actually think we use it even more than we use the word love. Let me give you some examples. How we talk about the world, good versus evil. What do we mean by good? How about this, sending out good vibes? By the way, if you're a Christian and you're struggling, please stop asking me to send out good vibes. No, ask me to prayer for you. Good vibes do nothing. Jesus moves, amen? Now, when a non-Christian says, hey, send out good vibes, I get it. They don't know the creator of the universe who died on a cross for them, who loves them, who gives us the Holy Spirit. They don't know him. So when they ask it, I get it. But when Christians do it, I'm like, man, either one, you haven't met Jesus yet. Or two, you don't know the incredible power that comes through prayer. So good vibes. We don't need good vibes. Good guys versus bad guys. Putting good out into the world. Again, we use this word. How about salvation in heaven? The way some people talk about their salvation as if this, I hope I'm a good enough person to make it in. Again, the gospel tells us it's not about how good you are, but how good God is. We're saved because of Jesus' righteousness, because of Jesus' sacrifice, not our goodness. And this is one that really hurts me because it's so filled with shame. It's the Christian comparison, the good Christian versus the bad Christian. Which, by the way, is not found anywhere in Scripture. But usually, how do we define good in this case? Well, you either don't drink, don't smoke... Uh, don't do drugs and don't, and don't do rock and roll and don't date girls who do, right? If you stay away from those things, that's a good Christian. No, that's, that's a man-made stereotype of what it means to be a good Christian. First of all, there are no good or bad Christians. There are healthier and unhealthier Christians. Only God is good. Now, if you understand that, think about how much freedom comes with that. It's not about trying to attain some level of goodness. Is that am I, am I striving to be as healthy a follower of Jesus that I can be? And here's the thing, a newsflash for all of us. None of us are healthy. We're all healthier. Healthy implies ultimate state, can't have anything wrong. We're all dying. All of us. That's the trajectory we're heading. The minute we were born, we were moving towards decay, which means that no matter how hard I try to be healthy, I cannot stave off this thing called death, Right? So my, my goal is to be healthier. The same is true spiritually. We should strive to be healthier Christians. And people who aren't, they're just they're moving in unhealth. And here's the thing about all people. 
all people are healthy and unhealthy. We have elements of both sides. And that gets away from the shame. Pastor Derek talked about this last week, that it's the Holy Spirit who does the new creation inside of us. It's not something we do. It's the Holy Spirit moving in us. Or how about this one, the church service, sermon or music, how we describe a church service. Now, this isn't bad. Please don't think I'm, after last service, people came up like, hey, that was, um, I don't know what to tell you, that was a service? I'm like, you could say it was a good service, but think about how we define it. Oh, that was a good service. That was a good message. That was good music, whatever it might be. No wonder our world is struggling with hope and discouragement if the way that we're defining things is whether or not something is good or not. Because how do we define that? How do we live in that comparison? Much like the word love, good is a word, we as Christians and even those outside the church often use and misuse and misunderstand. So to better understand this, I want to share a word with you in the scriptures from the Old Testament that God uses to talk about good. And it's what we call a junk drawer term, meaning it's filled with so much more than just the word good. The word is tov. Everybody say this with me. Tov. Say it again. Tov. Tov is used over 500 times in the Old Testament. And even though in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, Jesus was Jewish and most likely spoke Aramaic, but he would have thought in terms of this word tov. And the word good usually is referring or actually is referring to that word tov, but it means so much more than good. It can mean moral, ethical, virtuous, wealth and prosperity, better, best or well, as things should be, a state of being. Because I'm from California, I want a shirt that says, it's all tove, bro. Like, you know, it's all good. It's all tove. That, that, we're making that shirt, by the way. You can buy them later. <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> tove is this beautiful word that is so much deeper than just the word good. There's a guy named Scott McKnight, really well-known theologian, scholar, and author. He wrote a book called The Church Called Tove. Now, I, I read his book, which got me thinking about this. And it's first born out of heartache. That's what, why he wrote the book, because he saw this abuse going on in churches, spiritual abuse. And then he talks about what does it look like to be a good, a tove church. Listen to this quote from him. From the very first page of our Bibles, tove is the Bible summary term, the executive virtue for how God wants us to live. Tove is first and foremost about God. God is tove and God does tove. Tove is God's design for all of creation. Tov is God's artistic evaluation of all he did in creation. In other words, perfect, excellent, just as I wanted it. Tov is about beauty, aesthetics, excellent, and what pleases our senses of sight and sound. Let me give you an illustration of Tov. See, in the music world, we tune everything to 440. 440 is our tone. And when things are aligned, when music is correct and everything is as it should be, you have Tov. It's all the notes working together in harmony is Tov. It's how God created music to be. And so now when you play Tov, that's Tov. When things aren't how they should be, not Tov. <laughs> tov is when everything comes together as it should be, and it's God designing it. Yes, it can be moral, but isn't morality about what God, in, God intended the world to be moral and good and ethical and right and kind and compassionate? Yes, but it's so much more than that. When Brett plays drums, tove. When Jason plays drums, kind of tove. <laughs> Tove is this idea of goodness. When you've ever been out on the golf course, you know that I just started playing golf two years ago. And you know that when you hit the perfect, everything's in motion, your body, everything's straight, and you come through and the ball goes straight and long and it launches the way. Tove. When you and your wife are on firing on all cylinders at the same time and in unison and in unity and you're loving each other, tove. When your children pick up their room because they haven't all week, Tove. <laughs> when they do it and you didn't even ask them to, very tove. <laughs> tove is this beauty, beautiful word and it shows up in the first three chapters of Genesis. Tove shows up 15 times. On each day of creation, except for day two, for some reason day two, it doesn't say it was tove, but we still know it was. At the end of each day, he says it was tove. And then at the end of the sixth day, End of the sixth day, God looks down and he creates man 
And he sees all the world and he says, not just tov, but very tov. Not just good, it's exactly how he wanted it to be. But there's one problem, not everything is tov. In Genesis 2, it says he looks down and sees that Adam, man, is alone. And he says, that's not tov. Isolation is not tov. Now, he's not referring to moral or ethical virtue here. When he created the days and nights, that's not a moral issue. It's a tov issue in that it's how it's supposed to be. He looked at Adam and he said, that's not good. Man should not be alone. Aloneness is not tov. This is how we know that it's not referring to morality. Because that means if you're not married, you're in sin. And yet Paul tells us that it's sometimes better not to marry. What is not tov, what is not good, is for people to be alone. We're supposed to be in community with one another, to have life together. For Adam to be alone was not tov. Have you ever wondered why God, the only rule he said was you're not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good, tov, and evil? Like that seems like a really random thing, doesn't it? Why would God not want them to know the knowledge of good and evil? Shouldn't they be aware of when there's cunning and evil in the world? And here's why. Up until that point, only thing that Adam knew was God's tov because God defined tov. There was no evil in the garden at that point. So Adam didn't need to know what evil was. Had Adam actually trusted God and Eve trusted God, that God would define Tov, everything would have been good. But the temptation that Satan brought was this. God is trying to limit your freedom. He wants, he's afraid that you're going to know better than he does, that, that you're going to know the same things he does. And so Satan tempted, messed with Eve and with Adam. And I want to be clear here. Oftentimes we have pictures where Adam is out of the picture. But when you read the scriptures, it actually says that Adam is right by Eve when she's tempted. Adam just remained silent. Satan tempted them by saying, if you eat this, you'll know Tov. And you'll know what's not Tov. Before that, God just said, do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to let me define Tov? See, you only need wisdom if there's evil in the world. If all you know is goodness, you don't need wisdom because that's all you have is goodness. And so when Adam was tempted and Eve were tempted, they essentially were saying, God, we don't want you to define. We want to be a part of the def definition. We want to do it. And herein lies part of the problem. None of us are very good at defining Tov ourselves. None of us are. All of us end up defining things that we think are good, and we define them in our own way, our own wisdom, and it rarely ever adds up. Would you agree with that? Think about all the things that go wrong in the world. If you don't believe me, I can't think of a war... A crime, a wrong, a failed marriage, a broken heart that didn't start with at least one or more of the people involved thinking they deserved and reserved the right to define what was good in their relationship. They wanted to define Tov. Now, Jason, you might be thinking, Jason, I'm way different than that. I'm, I'm, I'm a much wiser person. Well, either one, you forgot junior high, high school, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, for some of you much older, 50s and 60s, I'm getting closer to 50, and trust me, I can tell you that I'm not very good at defining what is good. Because usually what I define as good is that chocolate donut after I just spent an hour and 15 minutes on the treadmill. Not Tove, bro. But in the moment, it sure feels Tove, doesn't it? And so God is saying, hey, I want to define, now listen to Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. He starts off by saying, the fool says there is no God. That's not Tov. That's not how the world is supposed to be. That is not good. That is not beautiful. That is not right. But the fool says, I don't need God. I can define Tov. The Lord then looks down from heaven on all of mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does tov. No one who does good, not even one. Paul echoes the same thing over and over again in Romans chapter 3 when he basically quotes from Psalm 14 and a few other texts in Isaiah and saying, listen, their throats are open graves. They're, no one is doing good. But you're like, Jason, I know lots of people who aren't Christian who are doing good in the world. Are you telling me that they're evil? Scripture tells us this. If the person defining what is good is someone other than God, that is not good. Therefore, it's evil. 
It doesn't mean Adolf Hitler evil. We're not talking that malicious or vicious people. When I was younger, I wrongly believed that only Christians could do good in the world and that every non-Christian who did good, they did it for selfish reasons. And then I started meeting atheists and Buddhists and Muslims and other people who didn't, weren't Christians who were more compassionate, more kind, more gracious, more loving than many Christians I did. And I struggled with going, God, how can they do all these good things and yet they're far from you? I don't get that, Lord. And then I was brought back to Genesis chapter 3. The issue is not that they're not doing good, it's that they're the ones defining good. That's what makes it wrong. See, for us, we have the Holy Spirit who works in us to define Tove. And now, when I love, and, and I'll be honest, the church does not always love as well as some atheists I know. We don't. But when we stand before the Lord, and Scripture says some hard things about this, He says, listen, all of your good works are like filthy rags before the Lord, meaning they cannot compare. They pale in comparison to God's definition of good, even the most loving, compassionate person. So what does that mean for us as a church? Well, when we seek to do God's tov, to do God's goodness, to love the way God loves, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not something we conjure up. It's something the Holy Spirit does inside of us. And now that tov, that goodness, changes us. We need to look at God's character because tov is so much bigger than just the word good. It's everything and anything that is good. Anything. When I love my wife, that is tov. When I show compassion, that is tov. And when we do it with the power of the Holy Spirit, now we're bringing God's definition of tov. Listen to some of the words written by the psalmist. All of these words are the word tov, which tov can be translated good, moral, ethical. You get all that, right? Psalm 23, 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Surely your tov and love will follow me. Think of all the ways that God has blessed you. How many of you can point to God's faithfulness in your life? That's God's tov. That's God's tov moving in your life. Surely God is tov, good to Israel and to all those who are pure in heart. But as for me, it is tov to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your tov, your good spirit, lead me on level ground. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your namesake out of the tov of your love. Deliver me. I want to invite the worship team back up. And as we prepare with these last few words, I want you to think about this. Here's the thing about tov. Tov is so much more than an adjective. See, tov, tov is a description of God, but it's more than that. It does describe his character. It describes his creation. It even describes us as his people. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of what God's tov goodness looked like. This is why Jesus in John 10 refers to himself as the good, the tov shepherd. Everything that is tov represents God. Jesus is the good shepherd, and then he says, listen, the good shepherd, the tov shepherd, lays down his life for a sheep, but the not tov shepherd doesn't. Tov is sacrifice. Everything we do comes to this tov is active. Scott McKnight goes on to say this, Jesus doesn't just do tov, he is tov. When we look at Jesus, we see tov. To be like Jesus Christ-like is to be tov, and to be tov is to be like Jesus. Again, the word good just isn't strong enough. It doesn't convey enough. It's so much more. It's tov. Jesus told us to love God and love others because this is tov. When we love our neighbors as Christ loved us, that is tov. Love is tov. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit, and all who are open to the Spirit will love God and love others. All who are open to the Spirit will be filled with tov. Tov is a reflection of God's goodness, and goodness is a reflection of Tov. This is who God is calling us to be. It's this perspective shift. Jesus shows us the way of Tov is love. How we love our city, how we love each other, how we love our neighbors, how we love God. This is what it means to be Tov. And then in Galatians 5.26 when he says, Let us not be conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The reason why we don't want to do that is because that's so not Tov, bro. It's not Tov when we do that. But when we love well, we are moving in Tov in the way of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 6, Jesus says, No good... 
Think of Tove. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear Tove fruit. Rather, the Tove, the good that you and I do, brings good things out of the good stored up in our hearts. When we come here, we are coming to store up what God is doing in us so we can release it into the world. If all you're doing is storing up God and hoarding it, you're just a glutton of God. We're called to use that energy to go out into the world and share the tove of God. Now, I want to share real quickly, and you guys can stand. I want to share these last words with you. Why don't you stand with me? See, I want you to think about this. There's a couple ways to think about this, okay? See, we often think about being and doing good. Now, those are, those are necessary. We're called to be tove. We're called to do tove. We're called to be good, but those are internal. In fact, I don't even have to be a Christian to ultimately use those words. But what if, what if the reason God has called us together as a church is not just to be and do, but to bring good? Because the first two are about something you do. The third one is you bringing something other than you. What if our job is to bring people to God, to bring God's toveness into the world, how we love our city, how we love our neighbors, how we love each other? What if when we bring God to them, when we bring them to God, we're realizing that it's not about you and me. It's not about what I do. It's about what God does. And that takes all of the shame, all of the weight, all of the fear off of us because we're really, I'm not the one who saves, you're not the one who saves, Jesus saves, amen? And when we do this, we move into something that is more beautiful, that is more tove. And now what we're left is thinking this, it's no longer about how you or I would love others, it's rather about how would Jesus love others. That's bringing tove. It's no longer about how I would treat my enemy, it's about how would Jesus treat your enemy. That's tov. It's no longer about what I consider injustice or justice, but what Jesus considers justice and injustice. It's no longer about what I care about or what Zion cares about. It's what Jesus cares about. That's bringing tov. You see, here's the paradigm shift, people. We want to be tov. Yes, we want to do tov, but more importantly, we want to bring tov because people are longing for hope in a discouraging world, and hope is tov. God is doing something new. We don't just have the hope of the world. We know the hope of the world, and that hope is Jesus. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the ways that we do this. Because God is moving. So as we come to sing this last chorus and we come to bring our offering, let us be reminded that God alone is Tove. He defines Tove. And that we want Him to move in us so that we can bring Tove. And that's how we be Tove. And that's how we do Tove. I know you're sick of hearing about Tove, but it's all Tove. <laughs> you get the idea? You get what I'm talking about? You, you're picking up what I'm dropping? We need to be more than just a church that comes to gather. We need to be a church that goes out and brings the hope of Jesus. Would you come and let's sing to the Lord. Let's worship God and bring your tithe and offering. God is good, amen? God is tov. All right, let's worship. Let's worship.